HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. I'm Mike Calameco from Food Talk. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host today, Brianna Kurtz, and I'm so excited to be with you and very excited about our guest. He's a popular guy, and we've been trying to get him on the show for quite some time. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Bryant Terry, author of Afro-Vegan, Farm Fresh, African, Caribbean, and Southern Flavors Remix to the show. Hi, Bryant. Hey, how's it going? Great. How are you? Doing really well. Just getting up over here. On the West Coast, <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> well, thank you. I, uh, thank you for joining us and um, finally getting you on the show. I know we're so excited to have you. No, I'm, I so love everything that you guys do over at Heritage Network, and um, I'm really excited to be here. So thank you for having me on. So let's jump right in. Um, this is your fourth, I think your fourth titled book, correct? And I know you worked on other projects um so can you tell me so a little bit the, this is the third book that i've solely authored okay. and then my first book was co-authored uh with my friend anna lapay so technically um my third book but i've um published four four books okay got got, got that straight now um can you tell me a little bit about how this book is different from your first two or how you kind of it's building on the first two uh, well, one, I actually know how to write a cookbook now. <laughs> <laughs> Lessons learned. Yeah, no, um, I, I love my two prior books, but, you know, I, I realized that it's everything's a stepping stone, and I was really, I feel like those books were preparing me to write this book, just in terms of honing my craft and, um, you know, not only in cookbook writing, but just uh, becoming a better chef. And, um, but I think, you know, in terms of the, the theme, the thread that's run throughout my work has been really celebrating, uh, not just African American cuisine, but more broadly Afro diasporic cuisine and, and really helping to reframe, uh, the narrative, um, shifting it away from it being, um, you know, particularly African American cuisine being like just, 
you know, all bad, the bane of African-American health, mm-hmm. uh, you know, nothing but like horrible um, comfort foods and really helping people understand that at its core, the origins of um, African-American cuisine are, are, you know, I think the type of foods that any Western trained allopathic physician or dietitian or naturopath would say we should all be eating, you know, nutrient rich leafy greens and tubers and, you know, things like butter beans and black eyed peas and sugar snap peas and pole beans and dandelions <laughs> and kale. And, you know, these are all really nutrient rich foods. And um, I just want people to, you know, really understand that that. that um, is a you know certainly not rejecting the comfort foods of the cuisine like fried chicken and red velvet cake and whatever else people right. might eat on holidays and celebrations, but um, helping people understand that in terms of you know historically the foods that people ate on a on an everyday basis were just um, farm fresh, real ingredients. And the result of the book came out absolutely beautifully, um, and. About all those ingredients, all those beans and greens and whatnot, where did the recipes come from? Were you inspired just by the ingredients? Did you travel, collect, did a lot of recipe testing, come for your family? Yeah, all of the above. Mm-hmm. You know, the book was really inspired. I, I, I described uh, my approach to the book in the um, introductory essay, and I really approached it as a collagist inspired by one of my favorite visual artists, uh, African-American artist, Romare Bearden, who um, did these beautiful collages that, you know, reflect the African-American history and culture. But that was my approach to this book because I really wanted to think about the African diaspora as a whole, uh, food coming from not just West and Central Africa where most, um, you know, Africans were taken during this transatlantic slave trade and brought to the Caribbean and to America, but really looking at the whole continent and the diverse cuisines um, throughout all of Africa and just kind of cutting and pasting different flavor profiles and um, ingredients and classic dishes and, and coming up with um, things that are completely new. So they were certainly inspired by, you know, home-cooked meals that I had growing up or from friends who um, come from the Caribbean and the African continent from my vast, a collection of cookbooks from different restaurants that I visited around the world, mm-hmm. um, you know, interesting websites, narrative histories, scholarly monographs about African-American and Afro-Diasporic food, and um, traveling. And yeah. so all those things were just this fodder for me to really come up with, um, you know, over 100 recipes. Well, and I feel like, I know you live in Northern California now, but you are from the South, yes? And you've you've lived a lot of different places, Um have like each individual place influenced you in some way? Yeah, for sure. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, um, in, and have you know my my family historically has roots in rural Mississippi, where we actually own farms, and I spend a lot of time in summers um, on our family's farms, and and then I um, moved to New Orleans for college, um, went to Xavier University in New Orleans, and so you know, I mean, obviously Memphis being like the barbecue, barbecue capital of the yeah. world, and, <laughs> and and more so than just the barbecue, but just having family who, uh, you know, understood the importance of growing your own food. And most of the food that we got was from our family farms and community gar- or home gardens um, and always farm fresh. Uh, we pickled and canned and preserved, uh, you know, a lot of the surplus that we had for the winter. And so that, that, you know, that ethos certainly inspires and kind of informs the way that I just moved through the world, but certainly my cookbook writing. And then living in New Orleans, I mean, come on, like Cajun <laughs> Creole cuisine. I mean, it's just 
so compelling and delicious at that. Um, I feel like in terms of my approach to, to cooking, it's certainly more than any other cuisine informs the way that I think about cooking. And if you consider, um, you know, the different groups that have kind of made up Louisiana from the French to the Spanish to Africans to, um, you know, Native Americans, like it, it truly is this type of um, hy- hybrid uh, cuisine that I strive to, you know, create in my own cookbook writing, looking at uh, all these various um, world cuisines and yeah. bringing them together into something that's cohesive. And I think it really comes through because um, it takes someone with your experience in all these different exciting food places um, to kind of bring it all together for us. So um, it definitely translates. Um, so our very own Jessica B. Harris, the host of radio, Heritage Radio's um, My Welcome Table, wrote the introduction for your book. And she's just such an amazing per- woman, amazing person, a wealth of knowledge. Was she uh, a resource for this book? She's always been a resource for <laughs> me in terms of just, you know, having an inspiring um, kind of mentor, um, guiding light, someone who has, you know, I mean, I hope to one day be as prolific as Jessica B. Harris, but I love the way that she combines, uh, you know, scholarly approaches to cooking and, and, and food culture with cookbook writing and really bringing together the recipes um, from the African diaspora, but also telling the stories and recounting the histories and helping people to have a much deeper understanding of this um, beautiful, complex uh, war cuisine. And, you know, I reached out to Jessica about the time that I wrote my second book, Vegan Soul Kitchen, and asked if she would, you know, just kind of mentor me and help me understand the process of writing books and navigating the publishing world. And she's just been a a great resource. And so for me, it it was such an honor to have her write the foreword for this book. I mean, it was like, yeah, just having, I don't know, Jesus come and write there. So, you know, she was just, um, so she's always been so generous and I feel like she beautifully kind of framed what I was trying to get across. And, um, yeah, much love to Jessica. Um, well, I want to go back to something that you brought up. Um, you mentioned the inspiration from Ramar Bearden, um, the artist, and I want to talk about how you really encompass art in your book or how you try to bring it in um, using film, music, books. So, for example, you have um, a Zatar recipe and you have Crescent by John Coltrane and Zatar Diva by, I'm going to, Sahir Hamad. I think is how you say it, um, yes. listed as pairing. Yes. So can you tell me about why you decided to do that and then how you did it? Well, you know, I think it was Wendell Berry who said that we need to be bringing the culture back into agriculture. Yes, that's <laughs> true. for me, it's really been um, a large part of my mission is kind of bridging this this artificial chasm that I think industrial food has created over the past 60, 70 years or whatever that um, has food on one side and art and culture and community way over somewhere else on another side. And so I really want to bring those things together. And in, in much of my work, uh, I don't know if the listeners are aware, but I actually, my, my work as a cookbook author uh, came from or evolved from my uh, work as a grassroots activist around health, food, and farming issues. So I started when I was living in Brooklyn. Um, I founded an organization called Be Healthy that worked with young people um, and using food, uh, cooking, and just engaging, you know, 
um, agricultural systems as a way to politicize them and move them to be food justice activists in their communities and work towards creating more um, healthy and sustainable food sources in their geographic communities. And one of the things that we really felt was important for us to do in, in the work with the young people is using art and culture and music as a way to um, get them thinking more deeply about these um, issues. So not starting with the public policy or the heady intellectual ideas, but move, you know, doing something that's much more visceral and moving um, with the food, with the music, with the art, with the culture, and then moving uh, eventually to the ideas and to the uh, public policy issues. And you know, I I, um, I almost see it as a, a kind of second layer, second and third layer of the book. If you think about just like the way in which um, you know, just I, I introduce certain films. So, for example, with um, my Jamaican patties, I um, suggested people watch. Um, What's the name of that film? Life and Debt by Stephanie Black that talks about the way in which economic globalization has affected the agricultural mm -hmm. industries in a lot of Caribbean countries, particularly Jamaica. And so rather than, you know, going off on some, I mean, haranguing people about that, I just offer a resource and mm -hmm. people can actually go and read it. And so for the uh, Vegan Soul Kitchen, I, I was joking with my wife about it the other night because the soundtrack for that um, book, you know, I pair each recipe with a suggested soundtrack or a song. Yep. Um, like, it was so meticulously put together. <laughs> I just spent, I probably spent too many hours on it. But if one were to listen to the music, just just the music um, all the way through, it tells a story in and of itself. And I was really intentional about that. But now that I have uh, two daughters, um, I, I wasn't able to be as, um, you know, kind of engrossed in that process. So I actually invited different friends to help me create the soundtracks for Afro vegans. So, you know, uh, my music writer friend, um, Dream Hampton, my uh, DJ friend, David Maduli, my friend who's a professor and um, music writer, Florence Lafargue, and all these different friends who um, are somehow connected to music. I was just like, let me just bring people in. So I kind of jokingly say it takes a village to write a, a cookbook <laughs> because I had so many different <laughs> friends. Well, it sounds like a really to, fun um, part of the process. Um, yeah. And it's kind of cool to bring other people in. I think that you respect and you know they have some kind of perspective because it's kind of like, well, what does this mean to you? And that's, you know, it translates. If it means something to someone, it's probably going to mean something to someone else as well. Yeah. Um, so I think that's um, really interesting and really original. I haven't really seen that many other places, that kind of um, direct um, coupling of the art and the food. Yep. Um, so have you been inspired by any other cookbooks? Like when you look at one, maybe some of your favorites that really helped guide you along the way when you were designing and thinking about your cookbook? Yeah, well, um, I take pride in my, my cookbook collection. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, they just serve as such uh, a major source of inspiration. I mean, I look at them almost every day. And not just cookbooks, but um, large format art books as well. But one of the books that was really inspiring to me in terms of the actual aesthetic of the book was um, Nancy uh, uh, Hashui. I, I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Nancy Singleton. Hashui, I think, is her mm -hmm. Japanese um, name. But anyway, Japanese farm food. That's an amazing book. book. Yeah, I know exactly what right? you're talking about. Yeah. And it's actually, do, so now that amazing. you say that, I kind of see the parallels between hers and yours a little bit. Well, one of the things, the, the thing that inspired me the most about that book was I love the beautiful um, the, the textile that she had on the spine of the book. Yes. 
And when we were thinking about that, when I was, you know, talking to the art director at Tennessee Press about uh, the aesthetic, I was like, I want an African textile inside <laughs> of my book. And uh, I showed her that book, and, and she made it work. And I feel like it, uh, it just it adds so much texture and, and beauty to the book itself. But, um, you know, um, I have to say I feel so lucky to be on Tennessee Press because so many of my favorite cookbook authors and so many of my favorite cookbooks are published by 10 Speed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, from, I don't know, um, like, what, Charles Fon's uh, book, uh, Vietnamese Home Cooking, to, I don't know, Man Reza uh, by David Kent. Um, yeah, there's a I lot. Really like a lot of- <laughs> You, you, you like that book? Yeah, no, I do. But there's so many now that are coming out that are just so from 10 Speed. Um, it's like every day I feel like there's a new one and they're all lovely. No, I know. I'm really inspired by a lot of, you know, I, I think now um, a lot of books that are being published in America are just amazing and beautiful and awesome. But uh, before I started, I don't know, maybe like six or seven years ago, I was really into a lot of the books coming out of the U.K. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh, the U.K. and Australia, I feel like a lot of the books, that were being published there were just kind of in line with my aesthetic. So I like Sky Gel's books, uh, My Favorite Ingredient, A Year in My Kitchen. Um, yeah, so many. I'll Interesting. <laughs> well, we're going to take a quick break, but before we do, um, I know when we were emailing, I got some out of offices from you that you were on paternity leave. So I think congratulations are in order. Um, Thank you. Thank you have you. two now. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I have a three-year-old and a nine-week-old. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, you have an absolutely beautiful family. You're going to have to update that photo in the back of your book because it's um, just a beautiful picture of your family. Do Does your daughter like to – does she like your food, or do you have to do, like, a, a kid-friendly version of some stuff? Does she help out in the kitchen yet, your older daughter? Uh, yes, yes. Our older daughter, she helps out in the kitchen – um, she's been helping out since she was, I don't know, a little before two years old. We would have her just, we'd set our little station up on the ground and we would get like leafy greens from our garden. And then we'd have like a couple bowls where she would like put, wash them in each bowl and put them in the colander. And then we'd have her tear the greens up. And so, um, yeah, we feel like we wanted to get her involved as quickly as possible. And she, I mean, we don't believe in this whole thing around you make a different meal for the kids. <laughs> it's like, uh-huh. you eat what we eat or you just don't eat anything. <laughs> So he, he has a very adventuresome palate um, as a result of that. Well, excellent. All right, Brian, we're going to take a quick break and hear from one of our wonderful sponsors. And when we come back, we'll continue our conversation about Afro-vegans. Stay with us. Okay. The following program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. 
optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. All right, welcome back to Eat Your Words here on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Brianna Kurtz, and I'm speaking with Bryant Terry, author of Afro-Vegan. So, Brian, um, I want to hear about your vegan experience. I know we talked about Memphis. We talked about barbecue. So how long have you been vegan? Or if you, or was there a point when you became vegan and, like, when and why? Well, I first started experimenting with vegetarian and veganism um, late in high school. And, um, you know, this goes back to the use of art and culture uh, in my work because it was a song that actually inspired my um kind of shift in my habits and attitudes and politics around food and eating. And uh, the song was Beef by Boogie Productions and, and Karis One, in which he says, Beef, what a relief. When will this poisonous <laughs> product cease? This is another public service announcement. You can believe it or you can doubt it. And he goes on and has this very brilliant uh, kind of deconstruction of our food system and, you know, talking about factory farming and its effect on not only the animals but, um, you know, human health and the environment. And, you know, I was so moved by that that I um, became whatever your perception or <laughs> the stereotype that you might have of the most annoying, self-righteous, dogmatic, finger-wagging vegan. <laughs> like, that's what I became after hearing that song. And um, it was so important for me to go through that phase. And most the most people, the people who had to feel my wrath more than anyone were my parents. And I just feel so badly that I put them through that now as a parent. But... Um, you know, it really helped me to understand that the least effective way of helping people think differently about their consumption choices or, you know, just the way that they're relating to food is by yelling at them and screaming at them and making them feel bad for where they are. And so, you know, I feel like it was important for me to go through that phase because now as a thinker, a writer, an educator around these issues, it helps me to understand the ways in which you can effectively um, get people to think differently about um you know, eating and consumption, because it's so personal. It's like, don't tell me what to eat. Don't you know, who are you to be <laughs> wagging your finger in my face? And so, um, but, you know, it wasn't a linear journey since then. Like, I didn't become vegan, and then I just stopped eating any animal products. I, I studied abroad in France when I was in college, and, you know, back in the early, uh, what, the mid-'90s, it was hard to be a vegan in France and yeah. my host family was feeding me a lot of yogurt and cheeses and so you know um, I had a little moment where I shifted away from that and then when I was living in Brooklyn in grad school at NYU I had this phase where I was eating fish again but um, right now I'm, I'm a vegan I don't any, eat any animal products and, um, and that, it feels good to me and um, it feels good in terms of my values and how I want to live in this world but, um, you know, I just think it's important for people to really be driven by their own values and what their body needs instead of just kind of choosing whatever they might imagine is the best diet and then follow, following the script in court according. Does absolutely. that make sense? Absolutely. And it's kind of, you know, practice what you preach. So, um, and letting it kind of live through your actions and your, and your lifestyle, like you said. So, um, yep. 
And you, you talk about vegetarianism, you know, kind of as the path towards a healthy lifestyle as well in the introduction. And it really comes from, it seems like a very heartfelt place about um, health issues in America, um, particularly statistics related to the African-American population regarding heart disease and diabetes and obesity and et cetera. So, um, and, you know, you're often um, shown in this light of food justice. So can you talk a little bit about the issues of food justice and what that means to you and how we can use our, and how we use our food? Yeah, well, as I said, um, before I even, you know, started writing cookbooks or publishing at all, I was working as a grassroots activist in New York. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I had this moment where I understood that so many communities, usually communities that were, uh, you know, working class, working poor uh, in the outer boroughs, uh, when you went to these communities, there were very few sources of accessing health, healthy, fresh, uh, affordable food. And... There are just, you know, a plethora of resources for getting the worst foods, lots of bodegas, you know, processed food, packaged food, alcohol, tobacco, you know, the foods that are highest in sugar, fat, and salt, and low in nutrients that we need. And then there are a lot of fast food restaurants in the community, and statistically, we know that these are the communities that are um, suffering the highest rates of obesity and uh, type 2 diabetes and heart disease and certain cancers. And inspired by some research that I was doing in in grad school at NYU, um, looking at the work of the Black Panthers in the Bay Area and then, you know, increasingly nationally in the late 60s and 70s, I really felt that the larger social justice movement was remiss if it didn't address um, food access and the effect on public health. And so um, that thread is always going to run throughout my work about helping us think more deeply about the the physical, geographic, and economic barriers that many communities um, have to accessing any fresh food at all, let alone uh, closely appropriate food, which Mm -hmm. is you know, a big thing um, that I've been focusing on, helping uh, some of the most impacted communities, African-American communities in America, um, who are dealing with food injustice, who are dealing with food insecurity, who are dealing with, you know, these horrible um, diet-related illnesses, to think about how their own cultural foods can be a part of them healing their mind, bodies, and spirits. Um, and I think, you know, you've been working in this space for a long time, so have you seen positive changes over time in your community? Um, do you feel good about the way things are, what direction things are going in? I do. Um, you know, I mean, from New York City to San Francisco Bay Area to places that I've just been traveling to over the past, for over a decade now, it's amazing just seeing the shifts occur. I mean, not only the, the proliferation of things like farmer's markets, um, but, you know, people in communities actually owning and driving the solutions to community food insecurity, not having people come in and dictate how they should address these issues, but people who are from the community, stakeholders in the community, faith-based institutions, uh, schools, community organizations, you know, working to um, increase more um, access to helpful food through, you know, food buying clubs and food co-ops and uh, community gardens and home gardens and um, just really saying that we care about our health, we know that um, this is a priority and, and we're going to do something about it. So I'm, I feel very hopeful and I think that, um, you know, these issues are obviously so much more a part of the public discourse than they were, what, 13 years ago when I first started doing this work. I mean, everybody from the White House to the grassroots are thinking about food issues. And so I feel like um, we've made a lot of progress. 
Great. So I'm going to switch gears and kind of get back to the book. Um, the first half of the show, we talked about Jessica B. Harris, and I want to bring up another guest appearance in the book, um, Michael Twitty. And for anyone unfamiliar with his work, he kind of operates in the same African-American culinary historian space. And he pens an epilogue of sorts in your book. And I was hoping you could speak about either working with him or maybe what he brought to the project. Um, you know, Michael just... Uh, he's just a brilliant guy. He inspires me the way he just kind of pushes in. And I love the way in which he brings in. It's like, you know, I, I just like it when people think creatively about educating people and just this whole kind of like living performances that he does. is kind of like, uh, I don't know, it's almost like performance art where he does these period pieces going back and, you know, thinking about and uh, practicing the different uh, ways in which enslaved Africans might have cooked and eaten um, in the antebellum South or, um, you know, his just provocative essays and, and, and talks about these issues. He really pushes people to, to think about, uh, you know, health and food and um, agriculture and race in ways that um, a lot of people aren't. And so I just felt that he would be, uh, a brilliant addition to the book, and what I wanted him to bring to the book is to push people to think more about, um, you know, not just eating healthfully and eating fresh, um, you know, home-cooked meals, but growing your food. I mean, that is a, a big piece that um, I, I want people to get back to. If they have the available space and the resources, to think about ways that we can uh, work towards healing the earth by growing food um, and, you know, at our home, if we have the space or at community gardens or, you know, somehow contributing to um, rural farms. But even if we can't grow it, supporting those people who are, who are really working hard to feed um, all of us in a way that's in, in line with um, sustainability and health. So, you know, joining a CSA program or um, getting food from your local farmer's market or, or um, farm stands. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, I feel like uh, that that was just the perfect sweet note to end the, the book on. Excellent. Um, so we're running out of time, but I, you know, I mentioned we've been trying to talk to you for a while and, you know, usually we have authors come on like when they're doing the main press tour or when they're on the road and which is great. Um, but I think it's kind of nice that we have you now after the, you know, you've taken your paternity leave. You did all the press in the spring. You were everywhere. I know we all saw you at the food book fair here in New York. Um, yeah. And so I kind of want to hear about like, now that you have some 2020 vision to look at the experience of the book, how do you feel about it? How do you, um, are you, and are you moving forward now? Are you like, okay, we're done with that one. Like let's move and you know, new products start to come up. <laughs> it's funny. I, I felt like I got whiplash uh, going <laughs> from like the launch of the book. I did a, this crazy book uh, release party in Oakland, uh, Impact Hub Oakland, and 300 people came. We had like a live jazz band. We had uh, African food being served, and it was just a beautiful night. And literally the next morning, I got on a flight to New York City, and I just didn't stop. Um, for for two months, um, just traveling and, you know, stopping and promoting the book. And it was really fun. And I feel like it was a great way just to get a lot of momentum going um, and allow me to kind of step away and feel good about it. And one of the cool things was the day, um, I think maybe like the day that I was putting my autoresponder on saying that I was going to be on paternity leave, I got a message that Amazon.com named it as one of the best cookbooks of 2014. It had only been out Congratulations. for Congratulations, yeah. <laughs> so 
that um, helped me feel feel good about just kind of stepping away and just spending time with family. But it was just so beautiful touring the country because, you know, I, I don't do just the typical bookstore events. I do, you know, farmer's market um, cooking demos. Mm-hmm. I do uh, pop-up no, You were here at Union do, Square, is that right? <laughs> Yeah, I did an I did a yep. you know an event in Union Square in Manhattan, and um, you know I think more than anything, just being able to connect with the people who um, appreciate my work and who have supported my work since 2006 when my first book was published, it, it means so much to me. And um, you know, I, one of the things I did with this book, which was uh, is, is a practice I want to continue doing, is I crowdsourced. Uh, before I even started writing, I actually uh, went on my Facebook, went on my uh, Twitter account, and then I told people about the general concept and asked people, like, what kind of recipes would you like to see? Like, what kind of, um, you know, what regions of the world or what countries or what different, you know, cuisines would you like represented in this book? And I got hundreds of answers and so just to come full circle and to meet people who are just being like oh I remember I you know suggested that you use um, hibiscus or you know sorrel or whatever and um, you know just connect with folks was beautiful well again the result came out um, wonderfully the book is beautiful everyone if you haven't get, gotten it yet go pick it up Bryant Terry's Afro Vegan we are about out of time Bryant thank you so much for sharing with us today and um, for all of your thoughtful words It was a pleasure to finally have you on the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That's all for Eat Your Words today. See you here next Monday at 1 p.m. when I'll be talking to James Casey, the founder and creative director of Swallow Magazine. See you then. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.